This is Content Content, a monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. This is episode number seven, recorded January 2nd, 2016. Happy New Year! Today's guest is David Dylan Thomas, a senior content strategist at EPAM in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome, David. How are you today? Great. Glad to be here. Great. Happy New Year to you. You too. Uh, you can find out more about David at uh, DavidDylanThomas.com. He tweets at Movie Pundit, and uh, maybe we'll find a little bit more about that today. Uh, David also speaks frequently and was a keynote speaker at the 2015 LavaCon conference. I first saw Dave speak two years ago at the STC Philadelphia's Mid-Atlantic Technical Communication Conference, and he's a really engaging speaker. I was uh, really inspired uh, and actually uh, inspired me to go to do some speaking of my own. So uh, if you can go to one of his talks, I highly recommend it. You'll, you'll definitely learn a ton. Uh, Dave is also the creator of the Content Camp in Philly, which I attended last year, and we'll talk a little bit about that too. Uh, David, or Dave, why don't we uh, start with your background? Can you uh, tell us how you got into content strategy? Sure. Well, it's a uh, pretty convoluted story, as it tends to be with content strategists. It's not like you can just go to school for this stuff. Right. Um, so uh, I am a filmmaker at heart. I've been making movies ever since I was in high school with like two VCRs, like editing. <laughs> and um, that's how far back I go. But um, <laughs> nice. Uh, all the way up through college, um, making movies. And then after I graduate college, um, I get a job working for the Center for Talented Youth at uh, Johns Hopkins, and that's basically an oh, online nice. writing course for um, uh, high school and junior high school kids. Um, and that's really when I fall in love with the web. This is around 2000. The web is really just starting to come into its own, and we're just using online forms to teach kids how to write. But the power of the web is really starting to come through to me. Nice. So basically, I'm taking this filmmaking background, right, and the storytelling background, and I'm kind of combining it for the next 10, 15 years with this uh, savvy about the web and understanding how people can connect with each other and how things work when they're from the ground up instead of, instead of from the top down. Um, so all mm. that kind of comes together, and I start getting jobs in publishing, in nonprofits, where even though my title isn't content strategist, I'm still making very specific editorial decisions about content and how we're going to use it to further the goals of the organization and coming up with strategies it isn't really until 2013 when I get a job at EPAM where my title, my card actually says content hmm. strategist. Hmm. But for at least 10 years prior, I was really doing all the things a content strategist does. Okay. Um, so why don't you tell us, I know, you know, it seems like content strategy is a new field. It's evolving constantly. What's your definition of content strategy? How do you apply it, I guess, in your work day to day? Sure. So my definition is deliberately broad, um, maybe huh. even selfishly so, because it means I get to get my hands on a lot of different pies. But I basically nice. say, if you've got a goal, right, your organization, yourself, your nonprofit, you have a goal of some kind. My job is to um, help you understand how content can help you achieve that goal, right? So a content, a content strategy is a plan that uses content to achieve a particular goal. So the example I like hmm. to use is a website called um, Significant Objects where these two writers bought a lot of junk at a bunch of uh, yard sales and tried to sell it on eBay. And the twist was, instead of giving them boring product descriptions like you would normally find in eBay, here's a hammer, it weighs two pounds, blah, blah, blah. 
um, they would write ridiculous stories. Like if you hold this hammer at the corner of fourth and market, a portal will open and you'll go and solve the world's problems or something like something hmm. equally ridiculous that no one would mistake for a real product description. But that hammer they bought for two bucks ended up selling for like 200, right? So it was this very clear demonstration of they had a goal to increase the value of these objects. And the strategy they used was to um, use a very particular kind of content to add value to these objects in the eyes oh, of the buyer. So that, that to me is a very, you know, it's an outlier, right? Not everybody can do that, but, <laughs> but it is a very clear example of this was a content strategy. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, so basically they enhanced the value of it by creating a story behind it. Yeah, and it's funny too, because these were like really serious writers. Like William Gibson wrote one of these little descriptions. Oh, really? Um, yeah. If you go to significantobjects.com, you'll see lots of examples. It's really an amazing experiment. Huh. Now, um, EPAM is an agency. That's, is that correct? Uh, yeah, and more, really. They, they do kind of end-to-end. They started out as a uh, really purely uh, back-end, software-based, 10,000 developer strong, mostly Eastern European-based um, uh, software uh, engineering company. Um, but then they kind of expanded. They bought uh, Empathy Lab in Philadelphia in 2012, I believe, and uh, that was more design, front-end, uh, user experience, and content strategy. So now they can do the whole thing, right? They can come in and say, hey, you're an uh, e-commerce platform and you want to just redo everything and replatform. We'll give you the content strategy and the design and the UX, but we'll also build the entire infrastructure. So oh, it's wow. real, real end-to-end kind of stuff. Wow, end-to-end. So at what point do you get involved in a typical project then? Uh, never early enough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds uh, right. Yeah, so so as early as possible. You know, in an ideal case, I'm there when we first get the RFP, when we're we're first doing the pitch um, and trying to, to come up with with what we're going to um, try, how, how we're going to try to help the client. Um, and if not then, then during discovery, when we're learning what we can about the client. Sometimes, though, I'm not involved until most of the UX has been worked out already, and it's just oh, we need copy and that. I'll tell you right now, that's the, that's the least um, opportune kind of <laughs> moment for a content <laughs> strategist. You'll hear us, the hue and cry from us all the time. We're not just copywriters. We're, we're, we want to help you earlier okay. than that. And, hmm. But it's funny, too. Even when I'm just brought in to do copy, I can already start to see the holes in the content strategy just by trying to write the copy <laughs> in a consistent <laughs> way. So, uh, but yeah, ideally, we're there from the word go. Okay, so you walk into, here's a new company. What, well, first of all, I guess, what kind of companies, what kind of people sure. are, coming to your, are coming to your agency for help? Yeah, sure. So EPAM being the size that it is tends to work with larger companies. Um, we've worked with, you know, your Coca-Colas, your Googles, your, you know, and in lots of different industries, you know, uh, software, entertainment, uh, healthcare, finance, just all over the map. Um, this year alone, I worked with a tire company and a bank and a big healthcare um, network. Mm, okay. um, so all sorts of industries, but a lot of the same problems, right? It's either we've got too much content and we don't know what to do with it. We got big because we gobbled up lots of different kinds of companies and now oh, they've okay. all got their own kinds of content and how are we going to make this all make sense? Or if it's e-commerce, it's often, you know, Amazon is crushing us. They're beating us on UX and on, on price and on all these things. But what they can't beat us on is content, right? So I, I, I sell sports equipment, and I know a lot about all these sports. Okay, great. Let's create content out of that, start a conversation with the, with the customer that Amazon can't have. So it's usually mm. somewhere in that realm of I either need to personalize more and use my content to differentiate, or I've got too much content and I don't know what to do with it. Interesting. Okay. So when you're in, introduced into a new project, is it is something um, along the lines of, well, what do I need this content guy for? You know, I'm paying <laughs> for UX, I'm paying for design, I'm paying for programming. What, what is this? Uh, 
where does the role of the content strategist fit in today? Yeah, you, you've put your finger on the current content strategy crisis, right? Because we want to be hmm. sold in earlier. The reason we might get brought in much later than we'd like to be brought in is because you know, the client doesn't see the value early on, but by the time they've actually started building this new experience, they realize, oh, right, content. <laughs> you know, <laughs> We haven't figured out how, how the content's going to work yet, and that impacts everything else. So um, that's a struggle we're still having. I mean, what I would tell, um, you know, if, if I were in sales, which would probably be a terrible, terrible thing, but if I were in sales, <laughs> um, I would sort of try to be, be pushing, you know, the story like I just told you, that content, when used properly, adds tremendous value. Like real dollars and cents value. It isn't some fluffy thing where it's nice to have pretty content. No, it's if you use your content right, you'll reach far more customers. The actual value of your, the literal dollar value of your items will go up. I mean, it's practically, not even practically, there's actual science around the idea that um, if you tell stories, people, mm. if people can attach a story to an object, um, it'll have so much more value for them. Like the, the old salesman technique of uh, sell me this pen, you see in a lot of sales, okay, uh, yeah. uh, like... Uh, seminars, it's like, you know, sell me this pen. Um, if you can tell a great story around that pen, like this is the pen that George Washington used when he crossed the Delaware, or whatever, you know, that, that all of a sudden, oh yeah, I'll pay a lot more for that pen. Um, so so if, I, if, if I can tell that story, I can explain why I can help you. It seems like that's the way that content strategy in general is moving is, or I see more and more, whether it's in the content marketing world or tech com world or content mm -hmm. strategy world, seems like storytelling is the big thing. Would you, yeah. would you agree that that's a thing now? Um, it is. And, and it has been just like content strategy. That's actually been a thing for a very long time. We just haven't had a name for it. We haven't marketed oh, it. Okay. We haven't tried to sell it the way we're selling it now. And when we sell things, we need to give them names. So yeah, it's the, 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 that's the thing. And it's, it is kind of an overused term and it's gotten to the point where it's, you know, people start to devalue it a bit, I think. But at the end of the day, I think that's very true. And I think what's important to understand is it's not just the storytelling, it's, it's organized storytelling. It's the strategy part of content strategy. I think that's the part, that's the story we need to tell better now if we're going to kind of prove our value. It's, it's, it's very interesting. The, um, I was in a, um, I run a content strategy meetup in Philly, and we had mm. a whole bunch of working content strategists on a panel kind of talking about the state of the industry. And a lot of the freelancers in the audience were kind of noting that if they called themselves consultants, instead of strategists, they can actually get paid more <laughs> because people will pay more for consultation, right? Because cons consulting sounds like something like this deep knowledge that'll right, help okay. me organize my thoughts and, and help me come up with a strategy. Whereas content strategist, I'm still thinking, oh, you'll help me decide which letter, which word to use here, which can be part of it, but it's, it's, mm. it's not thinking about it holistically. It's not thinking, it's not thinking like, um, okay, I have this blog over here and this video over here and this white paper over here. How can I organize those troops on the ground and get them to work together to do something bigger? Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, as a tech writer, as someone who works with technical communication all the time, um, I'm familiar, very familiar with the too much content. What do we kind of do stuff with it? Sure. Um, you know, all, all the people who are technical writers out there are always used to dealing with content, but lot less so the strategy part of it. So mm. can you go and you can you tell me, um, you know, you go into a new client. Here's my here's your day to day. What what tools do you use? What are you doing with, mm. on the strategy side of it? More on the well, tell us a little bit about what you do on a regular basis. Tools you use kind of that kind of stuff. Sure. So if I'm if I'm meeting with a client for the first time. Um, what I want, what I want to know is why are they making content? And I do this thing called a content deep dive, an in-person session, usually an hour, a couple hours with the client face to face and all the stakeholders who are touching the content, right? It's the person writing the content, editing it, approving it, uh, fact checking it, whatever. 
Um, and I sit down with them and I ask them uh, in about five different ways, why are you making content, right? Um, the content is there to achieve blank. If the content doesn't achieve blank, it's of no value. It wasn't worth making, right? I ask, ask that same question a lot of different ways because I really want to understand what the goal is. Like, why are we doing this? If I understand the goal, then I can actually come up with a strategy that's going to help you. Um, and so that's really my starting point. And I find out from that session what does the client value in their content? Okay. Then I can go and look at the, co- the client's current content and say, okay, well, are those things there? The client tells me that uh, the content really needs to be visual. I think that's really important for their customers. Okay, now I can go look at your content and see, is it visual? Is it just a bunch of bullet points? Um, the content needs to be um, clear, you know, very, very, very easy to understand, not a lot of jargon. Okay, now I can look at your content and say, okay, is there a lot of jargon? I'm coming up with the criteria I'm going to use to evaluate that content in a content assessment or content audit. And the tools I'm using really are just like Excel, right? Like there's nothing okay, super fancy right. I use. I've started to um, explore gather content uh, for some of the later work when we're actually building out templates and pages and stuff. But for that early sort of ground truth about the content that I'm going to use to build the strategy, I'm really just using, you know, Google Sheets or, you know, okay, Excel nice. or whatever just to, to, to kind of hammer it all out. I don't, I don't have a lot of specialized tools for that. Okay, interesting. So are most of your... Um are most of the clients for EPAM, are they um, external facing? Do you do internal stuff as well? I'm trying to understand, you know, trying sure. to understand, try to, where's the line, I guess, between internal and external? Where do you focus mm-hmm. on and is there a difference between the two? So uh, definitely a difference, at least in terms of how you think about audience. Um, I think when you're dealing hmm. with internal, there's way more audiences to satisfy. And it's a way that's a lot more okay. challenging than, than external if you have one particular customer base that you're going to. It also it varies a bit with B2B versus B2C. But um, hmm. generally speaking, I work with um, clients that are external facing. They're trying to build a either B2B or B2C experience. And the audience I'm trying to satisfy um, is external to the company. We have worked on intranets. Um, we've worked on projects where it's both intranet and extranet, like the whole kit okay. and caboodle. Um, luck of the draw, I haven't particularly run, run into those myself, but I've worked with people who have, and it really is a different kind of experience. Although the methods you're using are exactly the same. You're going to hopefully be able to sit down with the internal stakeholders, the person who's answering calls at customer service and sit with them and find out what their routine is like. So you understand what kind of content they need easy access to that they're not getting easy access to. The same way if I was uh, external facing, I would want to be able to sit down with a customer or watch someone, you know, shop in a store, shop online and see, okay, this is where they're getting hung up. This is the questions they have and the content that I need to support those questions or to answer those questions are X, Y, and Z. So the, the methodology is actually very much the same, but the types of problems, the, the complexity of the problems can vary greatly if you're talking about internal versus, versus external. Hmm. So do you, I guess, get a lot of pushback from clients? You know, I want video or I mm. want this. Do you, I mean, do you get a lot of pushback saying, I know it's right for my customers, do this, or yeah, yeah. do they kind of get, you know, do they kind of trust you as the content professional? Uh, I can say that it's a spectrum, right? The more they trust me, the better things tend to go. <laughs> and that's not even just a I'm so smart, you're so stupid kind of thing. It's more of just a working relationship kind of thing, right? Like there has to be a mutual mutual trust there. If there's any kind of suspicion, it's going to be that much harder to get anything done. Um, but I think that generally speaking, people are coming from a place of um, I think I know what needs to happen here or I just don't appreciate necessarily, you, you know, the the – why I need to make important, why I need to make decisions about content. 
Um, I like to say that like a content strategist's job is to help you make decisions about content. It's usually the problem with content isn't that poor decisions are being made. It's that no decisions are being made. Oh, it's just, just, let's just, we made a, let's make a video. Okay. Make a video. Well, where do you want to put it? I don't know. Put it over on the website. Great. Done. Right. Like it's just, it's not considered important enough to be decisive about. Um, and my job is kind of to convince you that it is important to be decisive about. And then in fact, mm. there's great value in being decisive about it. Um, so the pushback I usually get is not so much I know what needs to happen here versus it's it's more I don't care what needs to happen here. <laughs> Why am I even okay, paying right, you? Yeah. I don't yeah I don't need this. Right. Yeah, that's you know we always run that into into in with um, technical content. Oh, you know there's always people throwing more and more and more and more and more and never kind of taking it away. Yeah. Um, now do you do you know would you say that you do some information architecture kind of stuff? Mm. Would you say there's a difference in between content strategy and information architecture? Mm. I would say that information architecture is an important output of having a content strategy or that having a content okay. strategy should greatly influence your information architecture. So, for example, I had a client who um, was uh, selling automotive um, services and, and automotive equipment, and our research indicated that you know a lot of their customers might not know what a tire rotation is or the value that it would serve. Hmm. Their customers would, on the other hand, understand, oh, my tires are pulling to the left, or oh, there's this weird rattling sound. Uh -huh. And the answer for that problem might be a tire rotation, but they wouldn't know that immediately because they're just not that car savvy. So in terms of the information architecture, the way that things need to be structured for those customers in a way isn't a solutions-first information architecture. It's a problems-first information architecture, right? So instead of a huh. section for tire rotation, it's a section for, um, I'm hearing this weird noise, right? So that comes from content strategy, but the actual skills of our information architecture then have to come into play to say, okay, well, if that's the angle, this is how we need to execute. Interesting. So what kind of um, pain points do you come in contact with regularly? Um, it's, it's, it's a lot of that, right? So it's a lot of um, if a company does have an actual content team, you know, and I applaud that. <laughs> um, but if they do have that team, often that team doesn't have enough time to really come up with a strategy. They're just, you know, running to stand still. They're just trying to keep up, trying to get to the next, um, get through the next quarter, get the next um, piece of content out. They haven't had time to just sit down and come up with a strategy. Now, is that um, typically marketing people or? Very, yeah, very, very often. Very often. It's always interesting to see where content sits in an organization. Um, hmm. very recently, we've started to see the rise of this thing called the chief content officer. You can yes. name a handful of Fortune 500 companies who have one. Generally, though, content lives with marketing or with something called, quote, unquote, digital, right? Like hmm. head of digital, which is kind of a weird term when you think about it, but you kind of get it. For a lot of companies, digital is still a new thing, quote, unquote. But, um, but they sort of like assume that, well content is digital. We're not here making magazines. So the content is digital. Therefore, it sits under digital. So usually it's head of digital or head of marketing sort of ends up being your first, first point of contact in, in a company of any significant size. Okay. And then it kind of branches out from there. But, um, but yeah, so that's, that's what I end up dealing with. And those people are usually, as anybody in the company is, right? In general, anybody, the, the, the CFO, the, the, whoever, is so taxed just trying to get to the next thing that they, have, they never have a moment to just sit down and say, wait, what are we doing here? What's the actual plan? Mm, okay. Um, and so, and again, my job is to help you just take a moment, sit down and say, okay, what are we actually doing here? Mm. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So how do you use your experience in video uh, on your job on a daily basis other than creating video content? Sure. So uh, I feel like what I really learn 
as a content strategist from working on video uh, is two things, both around um, uh, allotment of time that you learn. If you're making video, you learn that time is a very, very scarce resource. Hmm. Um, Video is cheap now, relatively speaking. Yes. Um, you know, I was making movies back in 1999, and I can tell you, wow. if I had to make the same movies today, they would have cost me almost nothing. But um, <laughs> but what hasn't changed is time, how long it takes to make a video, to make a good okay. video, to make even an okay video, <laughs> and to edit it, and to put it in, you know, and to upload it, and all these things. It still takes time, so time management becomes important, and what's the key tool for time management? Having a strategy, having a plan. If you just go in without yeah. a plan, I can guarantee you it's going to take longer to get where you're going than if you actually have a plan. So I've, I've kind of learned the importance of, of time a lot. I've also learned the, um, the, the difficulty of uh, the very harsh realization that even once you create wonderful content, getting it out there, getting people to see it is a whole other job. That was a very big awakening mm. for me as a filmmaker. You know, I would spend two, three years putting together this, you know, what I thought was this beautiful masterpiece of a film, right? Um, and then realize, oh, wait, my work has only just begun. Now I have to get people to see it. Now there's a whole full-time job around getting it out there. Um, so when it comes to, you know, the creation of content and any content strategy, any content strategy has to also include a deep understanding of, okay, here's the mechanism by which you're going to make this content. But we also have to talk about the mechanism by which this content is going to be seen, the mechanism by which it's going to be continually audited to make sure it's still fresh, and the mechanism by which we're going to get audience feedback to understand what we should be uh, making in the future, and how often, and who's it going to reach, and then talking to the customer and all. So th there's just a very, wow. very big ecosystem above and beyond just make the content, get it out there. Yes, yes. So, wow. I, interesting. I, that's a very, very interesting tie-in. Now, you're... Um, take a breath. Okay. Uh, <laughs> every so often I get that brain fart. I, what I wanted to tell, ask you was your Twitter handle is at underscore movie, movie underscore pundit. Mm -hmm. um, are you still active? Is that something you do on the side or is, are you still active in the movie community? Oh, so filmmaking. Yeah, I still, uh, yeah, I, I still, I still, I still make movies. I recently have been making um, web series in 2013. We, uh, my, Producing partner Maurice Gaston and I uh, finished a web the first season of a web series called Developing Philly, which is all about the rise of the Philly uh, innovation community, um, which really kind of started to boom in the late 2000s and has kind of been rising ever since. Um, so we've did the first season of that and released it in 2013. You can see that at developingphilly.com, and um, we're just now really getting into shooting season two. Um, then I have this whole other web series called Dunk Donuts with Dave, where I literally sit around a table with uh, smart, interesting people oh, nice. in the area, and we just talk. Um, oh, cool. it's, yeah, it's inspired by Dinner for Five, for the five people out there who remember that show with John Favreau. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I still, I still keep my hand to that as much as I can. I wish I could do more, but again, like we just said, time. That's like the big... Yeah. Like, developing Philly, it's amazing what we were able to accomplish visually with that web series, it looks like it was shot by a professional crew, right? Because we were able to use uh, DSLRs mm. which have, and use real camera lenses and like get this really filmic look out of it um, for cheap, right? For what we were able to afford just having jobs. Um, but we have jobs, right? So the amount of time it takes to go out and do the interviews and do all the editing and do all that, that's nights and weekends. And so it takes two years to do one season, which should really only take maybe six months, maybe three months. Right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know... A little bit difficult getting the podcast 
interviews together too and doing oh, sure. the editing and stuff. So you know, you know, I know what it's like. You know what it's like. Um, let's talk about Philly a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, my fiance and I come down to Philly all the time. Love it as a tourist destination. Uh, every year I go to the STC Philly conference. Mm. Um, and this year, of course, I went to my first content camp, which mm. you, uh, which you organize and are a large part of. Is there a big content community in Philly? What's going on down there? Uh, very much so. There's a lot of uh, marketers, like many, many content strategists are either ex-marketers or ex-journalists because they're both trained to think about content in a very organized way. Hmm. Um, so it, 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 be, it comes naturally to them to, to take on the role of a content strategist. Uh, so there's a, kind of a, a very big marketing and journalist community in Philly to begin with. So that kind of feeds oh, the content okay. community. Um, there's also tons of uh, artists, musicians, filmmakers. I mean, there's a, there's a very big creative community there, which would never, I think, brand themselves as content creators. That's like the most boring name for an artist ever. Um, but, but, but from that perspective, I consider them just as much a part of the content community as anybody else uh, hmm. because they're actually making the stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd say there's a pretty rich content community there. And the, the, at, at events like Content Camp or in my own um, group, Content Strategy Philly, which I think has shown even more growth, actually, when I took over in 2012... 2012-2013, there were maybe 200 members. Now we're just about to break 800. Wow. So in a very short time, there's been this rapid increase in interest in content. And I'd say maybe, you know, half of our, you know, constituency are kind of like working content strategists, but the other half are people from other fields who are curious about mm. content. And most people who work in any kind of um, website, digital space now are kind of hybrids anyway. They have some hand in content. They have some hand in UX. They have some hand in design. They're kind of by default needed to uh, have, have an understanding. If they don't actually have the skills, understand how they all fit together. And I think since content touches so many things, it's only good for us because it means we're going to have people from UX coming to our sessions or mm. design, trying to have a better understanding of how, how content works. So I'd say there's a very large and growing community in Philly. Interesting. Are you seeing a lot of technical communicators coming out to these kind of things? Well, it's interesting. I've become more aware of the technical side of it by going to speaking to things like the STC comps mm. or going to, to see the SC. And that's a rich community as well. I mean, I think it's a um, struggling community because like most content creators, you know, be they journalists, be they whomever, understanding your place in a new kind of digital environment mm. is very difficult. So I gave, I think the first STC I spoke at, I gave this talk called um, The Future of Knowledge Transfer. And it was mm. really sort of based on this very very scary premise that one of the people a technical writer is competing with now is a 14-year-old kid on YouTube <laughs> who's posting, like, you know, SharePoint, you know, instructions. Because <laughs> you can get that on YouTube now, right? It's yeah, the, right. It's there's, crazy. there's so much stuff that was originally just the domain of a, of a technical writer that's available for free on YouTube now. And that's, you know, not just a problem technical writers have. Lots of people <laughs> have that problem now. There's lots of free stuff on YouTube now that used to, <laughs> that used to be very rare and very expensive. But, um, but I think that's sort of... Um, I think the point I'm getting at is like it's it's a it's a rich community, but it's it's a community that's trying to it's in the midst of trying to to redefine itself right now, and that's that's tricky. Right, and um, now what what's a competition for a content strategist like? If you know TechCom, we're working against struggling against forums mm-hmm. and Stack Exchange and YouTube. Are there people out there who are just throwing videos up on content strategy, or just people who are basically saying I'm a content strategist and you know and hurting the field? I. I should say, yeah, look at all these guys. But the <laughs> fact of the matter is, I don't think we're mature enough yet for that to even be a problem. 
Oh, interesting. Um, I don't. I don't think. I don't think the problem right now for content strategy is charlatans. I think the problem for content <laughs> strategy right now is ignorance. Um, it's hmm. still just you know amongst ourselves. I think we're starting to get a, a handle on it and say, yeah, we know who we are. We know the value we offer, and I think that's just us. I don't think if you go, you know. If you ask 10 people what content strategy is, you'll have 9.9 people saying, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we were just, right. we're just not, uh, we are where UX was 10 or 15 years ago in terms okay. of awareness. Like, I think it's mm. just starting to become clear that um, companies need to start thinking about being, you know, content first is kind of the new, the new buzzword. Um, I think companies are just starting to grok that but not nearly at the scale where it's easy to sell content strategy, right? Where it can just be a, def a default part of the statement of work that there's going to be content strategy as, as, part of, as part of the deliverable. It's just, it's just not there yet. It's still, I mean, it's growing. Um, and, you know, not for nothing, the, the, it's just, I'm just reminded of this. Uh, the U.S. is actually at the forefront. Um, hmm. I went to a Confab, a fantastic conference, by the way. I want to put a plug in for them right now. It's a great, great conference. But Confab is, the, is like the content strategy conference. Um, okay. uh, of, of the year and uh, there are people, content strategists from all over the world and I met people who run content strategy meetups from many different countries you know uh, one who has the runs it for all of Belgium all of Belgium has one content strategy meetup oh, wow. um, and, uh, and I was talking to someone who runs one in Sydney and I figure oh the hmm. Sydney one that's got to be huge and she was amazed of how, at how big the Philly content strategy one was, which, again, mm. Philly, great city, big city, but, you know, on the world stage, leading in that forefront. But it is. And I've sort of seen this again and again. Even London, who has fantastic content strategists like, mm. like Cleve Gibbon, um, mm. it's still easier to find content strategists here than there. It's very weird. So, mm. But that, to me, also kind of indicates just how young this field really is. Um, it's just, it's something we're at the forefront of, but even at the forefront, eh, most people don't really know what it is. It's still defining itself. People right. still, or, or it's, it's still, it's still, um, showing its value. And the, the irony is we're content strategists. We're supposed to be good at using content to tell a story. And I, for, for whatever reason, content strategy doesn't have a very good content strategy. <laughs> so how do they fix that? Uh, I think they have to do what's very hard. It's the cobbler has no shoes problem. They have to do, we, we have to do the very thing that we're asking companies to do, which is to say, take time out from the grind of trying to get mm. the next, of trying to get the next hustle and <laughs> nice. stop, sit back, get together, organize and say, okay, these are our goals as content strategists. How can we use content to achieve them? Right. Take, take our own medicine. And it's a very, I mean, it's a very hard thing to do period. Like it's, it's any, any profession, any field, you'll find that, I mean, my own company, we only recently got, you know, a half decent website together. There was a very long time <laughs> when we would go out on uh, you know, sales calls, or whatever. And the last thing we'd want people to do was look at our website because <laughs> it just wasn't there. Cause we hadn't been able to say, okay, we're going to sacrifice these billable hours to work on our mm. own stuff and make it look good. Um, but we got to that point and it took a year or two years, but we did it. And now we have a very you know nice looking website, but that wasn't always the case. <laughs> Right. Have, well, have you ever found anyone who actually does like their website? I don't like my <laughs> website. I don't like any of the stuff I've done, and yeah. I'm just one guy doing it. I, I haven't really. It's it's funny. I was um, this is a few years ago, but I went and took a look at a bunch of uh, movie studio websites, and I haven't done it in a while. So I, okay. But I imagine it's probably still the horrible show that it was then. But a couple <laughs> years ago, I went and looked at it, like all the major. These are major studios, you know, Fox, mm. Universal, and you know, I'm a movie guy, so I was curious to look at their websites and see how they were organized and how they were using content. It was terrible it was just awful um and these are professional storytellers right. these are mm. billion mm. dollar people who get paid 
billions of dollars to tell stories. Um, and they were doing a horrible job of telling stories on their, of telling their story. So I'm not at all embarrassed to have what I feel is a subpar website for myself. I'm still working, you know, <laughs> work in progress, right? Um, or to say that I'm not, or that, or developing Philly even. Developing Philly was a situation where we knew we had limited time to create it, and we had to decide how much time we're going to put into uh, making it a good web series versus promoting it. And we chose to spend the lion's share of the time making it a good web series because at the end of the day, we're not getting paid to do this. If we want something to show, we want it to be a great show, not, oh, we look at all this great marketing we did. So, but that having been said, I would have loved to have been able to have more time to really market developing Philly and mm. get it out there and do more screenings and there, blah, blah, blah. But we just didn't have the time, right? So, and I'm a content strategist, and I would say developing Philly has a terrible content strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Our content strategy was get it on YouTube or get it on Vimeo, have a website, uh, we'll tweet a little bit. Yeah, we're out of time. <laughs> you know, that was our content strategy. Yeah, it's frustrating to get stuff out there. I mean, you know, I guess years ago it used to be easier when Twitter was in its infancy, but now there's a mm. huge sea of stuff. I mean, you're doing your stuff, your video stuff, you're speaking, you're out there. I'm doing my podcast, you know, and you know, I obviously have a niche audience, but it's really hard to get out there. Are you have, you know, is it how have you gotten your success? Are you are you getting a lot of followers because you're speaking? What's you know, I guess what's your digital strategy, your social media strategy? So in order to have a strategy, you kind of have to have a goal. And this is something we haven't actually talked about yet, but which I think is a huge part of content strategy is understanding um, KPIs and measurable analytics and saying, okay, okay we've got this goal. How are we going to know if the strategy worked, right? So um, so one goal for me, for example, could be, um, uh, or one metric could be uh, speaking gigs, right? Do I get you know, invited to speak at this or that? Say LavaCon, for example, speaking at, that was, that was my first time actually keynoting at a conference, okay. which was a, sort of a, a big goal. And, you know, again, I'm not sophisticated enough to have a very coherent strategy. I'm working on it. Um, so I'm kind <laughs> of backtracking my goals. But if that were a goal, I can sort of say, okay, well, how did we get there? Uh, because of knowing people like Felice Banner, which came from attending South by Southwest a few times and going to Free mm. Cafe, which is an event, a storytelling event uh, there, which kind of helps people understand me as a storyteller. So I feel like if I say if if I look at that as the metric and look at that, you know, uh, as the strategy, I'd have to say in person, being <laughs> being able to go to mm. things and meet people in person has been my most effective strategy. I mean, and again, it wasn't a very coherent, oh, this is what I'm going to do strategy was more looking back and seeing what worked. Um, but I'd say that that has been, um, and that's something I'm going to continue, um, that, that has been probably the most effective strategy is going out and meeting people and talking to them and having them see me speak and then talking to them afterward and developing these more long-term relationships hmm. is how I've gotten to. And I think that the content that comes out of that, right, so I may speak at South by Southwest and now I've got a video of me speaking at South by Southwest, that becomes almost your bona fides. Like if you're filling out a form to go speak at a conference, a lot of the time now they'll have a sh show us a video link of you speaking. Well, I've got that. Hmm. Oh, nice. Right? I've okay. got a whole bunch of those now. Right. Or I can, I, or I can post something on Medium and kind of expose hmm. this... I'm doing a lot of create once publish everywhere now. So I'll have a talk okay. like um, I give a talk on this thing called agile living, applying agile um, workflow principles to daily life. Right. So okay. I gave that as a talk and that talk's been recorded and it's on YouTube. It's on my LinkedIn page. Um, but I also created um, the slides and I put those up on SlideShare right. and I turned it into a three part um, medium article series, uh, which okay. I also published to LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So, right. So I have this one thing, mm. this one idea that okay. I can then communicate through video, through um, SlideShare. I should probably do a podcast at some point, um, <laughs> and through um, 
uh, through just reading through uh, through Medium. So that gives people more opportunities to kind of discover me, discover my brand, as icky as that sounds. But um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and and the the stage I'm at now is saying, okay, I think I've got a handle on that principle of create once, publish everywhere. What I'm working on now is creating that um, sort of one-stop shopping for saying, okay, I've got all these disparate things. This thing's over on SlideShare. This thing's over on Medium. Mm. How do I kind of coalesce that into one experience for somebody so that if I do meet somebody at a conference, I want to say, look, if you just go here to kind Mm. of get a taste of what I'm all about, what is that? Because right now, what I've got is a blog that basically has a bunch of like Oscar predictions or something on it. I don't know. It's like, (laughs) it's so all over the place. I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I make that? How do I tell a more coherent story about myself? Right. It's tough. Um, Rather than just hope that my LinkedIn page can do the trick, you know. <laughs> That's a, sadly, I think my LinkedIn page is probably the best story of me professionally right now. Yeah, I know it's sad, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing. It's it's hard, I think, to kind of be a person as a, especially in social media. I think it's difficult to be the person who people go to for content strategy or go to, and and be a person. I'm I'm struggling with that a lot mm-hmm. on social media. I think saying, okay, I'm Ed Marsh. I'm a, a deck writer. I do this podcast, but I also like to taste different beers and I like mm-hmm. to go watch IndyCar and stuff like that. And I think it's, I think that's a hard, difficult thing for everybody. What I, what I, my hope though, is that that starts to become the norm and not the exception, or that starts to hmm. become a, a feature and not a bug. Right. Cause I think that, um, and this is my whole future of work thing that I've kind of been obsessing about lately, but I think that increasingly the kinds of jobs that are available, like I have a, I have a seven year old son and by the time he's grown up and, and looking for a job, the jobs he's looking for or the, the jobs that are available don't exist right now. They, they just don't, hmm. right? Like when I was his age, there was no such thing as a content strategist. Right. When I was twice his age, there was no such thing as a content <laughs> strategist, right? So we're inventing new jobs about one a day. <laughs> so you can't, we can only imagine, you know, yeah, tw- 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what kind of jobs are going to be available. So, and or I think not. that the, I think that the top, or not, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, what the kinds of problems we try to solve are increasingly complex, and it's very hard to just pin down and say, okay, you um, uh, create fonts. That's your one job. That's the only job you're ever going to need to do, right? <laughs> it's, it's just the world's getting so complex that it's like, okay, no, your actual job is to be Ed Marsh, and that means this skill set and this skill set and this skill set, and that means this changing skill set, right, that's you know evolving to me at times, and my job is to be David Dylan Thomas. That's what it'll say on my business card. It won't say content right. strategist, it won't say marketer, it'll just say David Dylan Thomas. Okay. And increasingly, we're going to, this is my theory, right? Increasingly, we're going to come up with ways for you to be able to extract what that means quickly. David Dylan Thomas, oh, that means you're good at this, this, this. Oh, that, that's who you are. Got it. I can very quickly determine whether you're going to be able to help mm. me with my project or not, right? Um, so it's going to be more about you know, the interview and kind of getting a feel for what a person is capable of rather than it's basically person first skill second, which is not where we are. Where we are right now is skill first. Okay. Find me a content strategist. And then Mm. from that, I'm going to whittle down to a person. I think we're some, I think we're somehow going to find a way to flip that to, okay, you're David Dylan Thomas. Okay. Let me help me understand what that means. Okay. Yeah, that Mm. works. Yeah, that doesn't work. You know, I have no idea how that's going to work, <laughs> but if we can make it work, it's going to be way, it's going to be way more appropriate for the kinds of jobs and the kinds of challenges and the kinds of projects that we're even now doing now. Okay. That's cool. So you're big on the future of work thing? I'm starting to be. Yeah. And in part, that's selfish too, because, you know, I love content strategy, but I want to do a lot more filmmaking 
right. I want to understand is there, where's the value prop there, right? Where's the way that I can sustainably <laughs> spend half of my time making movies and still bring home the bacon, right? And right. is it crowdfunding? Is it crowdsourced patronage? That's another thing I talk about a lot is kind of future of content and future of content compensation. Um, there are platforms now where you can just support a person. You can say, uh, I love Ed Marsh. I love what he's doing. He's going to get um, $2 a month from me because I want him to spend mm. as much time as possible doing what he loves and not working at a Starbucks. Um, is that scalable? Is that sustainable? Mm. I don't know. I would love for it to be because that's, you know, if I can create an audience, good news for me, right? But um, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on Patreon. I support a couple of people. There you support, go. Um, yeah, exactly. Keith Knight, who com- was a comic uh, a comic strip artist and mm-hmm. um, Dan Benjamin, who does the five by five podcast network. So it's interesting to see those kind of things where people are like, Oh, I need money for this or I need money for that. And you think um, you think, well, you, it sounds like you're not sure if that's the way to go. I mean, I would love for it. I'm, I'm wishful thinking, right? I would love for that to be the way to go, mm. but it remains to be seen how scalable or sustainable that is. It's, a, it's still way, way early <laughs> to, to, <laughs> right. to understand. We're, right. we're, still, we're still creating the platforms. We're still trying things out. Um, we're, we're very much in the sort of content lab phase of all of this. Okay. So let's go back a bit again to uh, the talk about analytics and KPIs mm. and stuff like that, because I think that's something that technical communicators either aren't aware of or aren't using mm. enough. Um, can you tell us what kind of KPIs are, or key, well, when it's a key progress indicators, is that what a KPI is? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. What's the return on investment that a person who's looking for a content strategist, what kind of, what, I guess what people in the C-suite are the decision makers, what mm-hmm. are they kind of expecting in terms of results from your content strategist's work? Well, I... To be honest, I don't know that they're expecting anything because I'm still trying to convince them that there is something to expect. Hey, nice um, job. That's a nice <laughs> job, huh? <laughs> nice work if you can get it. <laughs> but, um, but I think what they should be expecting is uh, literally a return on investment, right? So when I'm again, when I'm trying to sort of tell my story, I point to actual results. So uh, we did work with a, a legal software platform. And, uh, and this was a combined effort. Um, that's another thing we should talk about a little more is like, again, ideal world, I as a content strategist am part of a team. I'm working with user experience professional, design professional, developers. We're, we're working together to create a creative vision. Um, so I was working with a legal, um, software producer. And once we had executed on this vision that we had developed with, you know, UX with everybody on the table, um, that made better use of content that was more appropriate to their needs. We sat down with lawyers and discussed content mm, and how they okay. consumed it. And it became very clear very quickly that they had no time, <laughs> right? <They're, laughs> they, they have zero time to consume content. And our, our client was pushing out these big, long web pages with 100 bullet points because they felt they needed to show every single feature, right? right? Um, so once we streamlined that... Um, the, the client already had a very robust analytics team who was looking at the results and saying, hey, this one page is now getting, I think it was like a 140% lift in terms of how many people are actually, you know, uh, how many leads they're getting. And then um, what was really interesting was we had just done that page for that one product, but related products also saw a lift and the website as a whole saw a lift, even though those pages hadn't been touched yet. So <laughs> that alone, it's sort of like, if, if you'll let me apply content strategy to just one of your products, I can show you lift across your entire site, right? Hmm. And that's what you should be looking for. You should be looking right, for, okay. we went out and we've discovered these are your uh, customers' needs, right? And, and as much as we can, we want to say, okay, if we can better meet those needs measurably, right? Either through more sales or through fewer... Um, 
fewer uh, customer service calls or whatever, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a result, right? That's a measurable result that you should be holding us to um, if we're good at our jobs. Okay. And I think, you know, as technical communicators, we're always looking, okay, what's our value? Our value mm -hmm. is reducing support costs. Exactly. Like that. exactly. But I think, you know, I think a lot of people, like I said, aren't really using their content on the web mm -hmm. to get not noticeable numbers from that. And, you know, they don't, they're kind of guessing that they're reducing costs and with no direct um, metrics to show it. And I think that people really in, in the tech com world, you know, need to get their stuff on the online and on the web. Mm. And I know a lot of people don't can't for business reasons, but sure. if you can, you know, put it out there because that way you get the numbers. At least you can have something to speak to the management and speak their language. What was what was really interesting at LavaCon this year was kind of a new metric for the value of tech writing, which was uh, marketing, and okay. this idea that not only can tech, good tech writing, and deployment of that writing. Um, reduce uh, customer calls, reduce reduce service calls, it can actually increase sales because for a lot of industries, like let's say I'm looking for a washer, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the first things I'm going to look at is the manual. I'm gonna, I want to understand how easy is this thing to use? Can it do these things? Or if I'm using search terms about I have very specific needs out of my washer, those terms are more likely to show up in the um, manual than they are to show up in the marketing. So mm. what the tech writers now bring to the table is something that a lot of people are using as their first point of contact with the product that's increasingly hmm. happening. Okay. And so there's, there are a few different um, talks at LavaCon this year about understanding technical writing as the first line of defense in marketing, or as the first kind of salvo in marketing, um, and trying to get companies to kind of merge their marketing and their tech teams, which, of course... Nobody's happy about. <laughs> like there's, there's a <laughs> right. lot of suspicion there, uh -huh. but but to really think of them as one holistic team as opposed to two different divisions dealing with two different parts of the product. It's like right. no 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 no. People are starting with how easy is, is this thing going to be to maintain? How easy does does it satisfy these very particular needs I have? I, I just got a new um, you know big screen TV, nice. and I, I hate this thing that they call the soap opera effect, where the refresh rate is too the the um, uh, yeah, the refresh rate is too fast, basically. Um, and as a result, everything looks kind of plasticky and weird. Um, and a lot hmm. of people don't notice it, but I do. And hmm. one of the first things I looked up was, okay, what is that effect? What causes it? Okay, it's this thing. Okay, it's this judder thing. Um, okay, I'm going to go search on that. And then, I'm, or, or if I look at this product, that's the first thing I'm going to look for. And a lot of that's really only buried in the technical manual. Right. Okay. Right? <laughs> so for, for me, buying a, a very big investment in a very big TV a lot of that wasn't going to happen unless I got certain assurances out of the tech manual. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So here I am. I'm a 20 plus year technical writer. I've read Aaron Kassane. I've read <laughs> uh, Sarah Wachter Betcher. I've read Karen McGrain. I've read, you know, Nas Urbina and um, Rahel's content strategy book. I've read information architecture for the World Wide web, the polar bear book. How do I, you know, could that mean I can just hang my hat and now I can say, hey, I'm a content strategist and get a job? Uh, I would say if you've read too many books. Not that I discourage <laughs> any of those books. They're all awesome books. And I know some of those people, they're awesome at what they do. Um, I would almost say uh, I would rather you meet some of those people because <laughs> some of them are very accessible. Like Karen McGrain and Sarah Walker betcher speak in Philly all the time. Okay. Um, but, uh, but I would say at I would say it should be more 80-20 doing versus reading. Um, okay. So go out there and actually start developing content strategies. Okay. Find a nonprofit that is looking for help with that or a local theater mm. or whatever, like somebody who needs the help. They're not going to pay you. 
Um, but your payment is going to be an experience. Your payment is going to be an understanding how to, well, right. just for yourself, right? Just come up with a coherent content strategy for yourself, and you go through all the steps of saying, okay, you know, the reading, basically, the 20% reading is there to feed the 80% of doing, and so that you're going to take these things that you've learned from Sarah Walker Betcher and from Karen McGrain and say, okay, how can I apply that? Give me, give me, give me some, you know, I can't make uh, bricks without clay. Give me something to work with so I can mm. try this out and see if this works and see where I failed and come up with a goal and come up with a KPI and then say, talk to my client who might be your local you know, um, food shelter and say, okay, mm. uh, what are you guys trying to do? Who are you trying to reach? Okay, let me talk to some of those people you're trying to reach. Okay, um, what do you have access to? Do you have a website? No. Do you have a Facebook page? Yeah, okay. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me work with that. Like, do all hmm. of the things a content strategist does for free with someone who needs the help. Right. So at the very least... Now you can say, okay, I've learned from that because that's the other hmm. thing. I mean, content right. strategy is learning. You're constantly finding out what works and doesn't work, and that's a moving target. And then at the end of the day, you can also say, when you finally have done that a few times, you can say, well, these are the people I've done content strategies for, and these are the results I've gotten for them. And cool. you don't advertise that you didn't get paid for that, right? <laughs> <laughs> what you advertise is, look at the results I got when I applied content strategy for these people. Cool. Thanks. That's that's actually really good advice, and you know I think that happens in any career. Is go just go out there and do it. But yeah, I should probably uh, I should probably read something else at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so um, almost a year ago, February of 2015, hard to believe that's a year ago. Mm. Uh, Sarah O'Keefe of Scriptorium wrote a blog post about the uh, talent deficit and content strategy, noting there is more open positions than available content strategists. Um, are you seeing that? Can you, um, did you are you, can you do you agree with that? So it's it's weird. I think it depends where you look. So in that article, she's focusing particularly on skill sets around um, what I would call and what some um, uh, Simple A was a company at uh, Lavacom this year, and they were talking. They kind of introduced this concept of the content engineer, who has kind of hmm. a deep understanding of uh, business strategy, but an equally deep understanding of technical writing and, and things like DITA, um, right. which, to be fair, not a lot of content strategists have a deep deep understanding okay, that's of. A good question. Um, and uh, and I think, but I think she's right. I think that particular role of the content engineer, someone who kind of has able to pull those things together, is fairly rare. And I think companies are sort of trying to hobble those together out of saying, okay, we're going to get someone who understands kind of the business strategy of content, get someone else who kind of understands the technical requirements of things like data and their CMS, and kind of create a team out of that or create these dependencies out of that internally. Um, so they might not be hiring for the you know unicorn. I know all of these different skill sets. Mm, okay. Maybe they're trying to basically Frankenstein the unicorn together out of these different. <laughs> so which is which is fine. I mean I think that's that's a more realistic realistic approach. Right. Um, I mean if you want to be highly employable, yes, get yourself you know, with deep understanding of you know the data requirements and kind of the development requirements of the platform you're building, along with a really deep understanding of how that content. What's the end, end result, right? How is that content being deployed, and how can I model that content to work with this CMS or this um, language? Hmm. Um, I will be honest; I'm not there. <laughs> I'm much more on the business strategy side of it. But okay. but so I think I think she's correct in in, in that piece of it. However, I think more globally, what I'm seeing is that agencies. And freelancers are still kind of having uh, a difficult time telling the story like we were discussing before. It's still right. difficult to sell content. It's still difficult even for some mm -hmm. salespeople to understand the value of content when they're trying to sell it in. We're still, you know, I, I work one of the few, you know, I'm very grateful that I work at one of the few um, companies uh, uh, that actually has 
uh, agency type companies, you know, client facing companies that have multiple content strategists. I work on a team of four, um, I think soon five people, hmm. um, which is very rare if you're talking about the agency world. What's right. ironic is, and this is, I think, where the deficit probably is, is showing up. If you look at large companies, your Facebooks, your Amazons, your Apples, your Googles, that's where they're hiring content strategists in bulk. Hmm. I, I recently visited um, a friend of mine who works at Facebook, and he was telling me they have like 40 content strategists, and they are hiring more. I just recently saw a listing for um, New York. They have a New York office, and that office is looking for a content strategist. So it's not just hmm. West Coast content strategists who are getting work now, right? Okay. Um, so I know there, Amazon is, I think, also uh, in, in New York as well as in, uh, um, on the West Coast. Um, Amazon's hiring, I think they had a listing for like, you know, 30 or 40 openings for content strategists. <laughs> um, so really big companies uh, and young-ish tech companies, like in the okay. last 10 years or so companies, are get it. You know, hmm. even if it's a somewhat narrow view of content strategy, they get it. They get that if they um, invest in content, it will be rewarding for them and in a, in a very measurable way. They're going to see, Facebook's going to see a lift. They actually, Facebook was actually at LavaCon and they had um, uh, one of their strategists give very specific, very numbers oriented examples of when we employed this strategy, we saw an 80% increase of clicking on oh, this wow. button, right? Um, or, we saw a 1% increase, which when you're talking about Facebook, what's 1% of a billion, right? It's, it's, they're, they're talking serious, serious wow, numbers yeah. there. So they get it. So I think right now, some of the larger tech companies are way ahead of a lot of the mm. agencies in, in, or, okay. or in terms of uh, understanding the value of content strategy. And I can completely buy that there is a very big gap um, there. Interesting. Okay. So... Um, what do you think, what skills technical writers have currently that are translatable to the content strategy position? And I'd like to know specifically, you brought up Dita, mm -hmm. uh, which I've talked about a lot on this podcast. Um, is that becoming, is structured authoring and Dita specifically becoming more prevalent in content strategy in the agency world, in the external facing world? Uh, I believe so, yes. I mean, it's getting to the point where you kind of have to. I, you, 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 um Nazarbina uh, gave a great workshop um, while I was while I was all kind of about um, content modeling, I and mean, he's sort of one of the masters of understanding uh, in detail how to really do it right. And it's it's coming to the point where content modeling is going to become a necessity for any realistic content strategy product uh, project, um, because it is very unlikely that I am creating any kind of content experience that only exists on one platform for one hmm. user at one time, right? <laughs> It is far more likely that I'm creating, I'm contributing to a digital experience that exists on a phone, on a watch, and on a laptop all at the same time for different people in different countries and different regions at different times of day. And all of those differences matter, right? If I'm building mm. Yelp, it matters if I am in Philadelphia at 2 a.m. versus Hong Kong at 1 p.m. It makes right. a huge <laughs> difference, right? And the content has to respect that. And I have to understand um, how to structure that content in such a way that it becomes flexible enough to provide value depending on who I am, where I am, what device I'm on. And the way you get there um, is through content modeling. And even that, frankly, and um, Nas will be the first one to tell you this, is inadequate. I was talking to him actually after the session because this is something I've been grappling with. Content modeling is trying to describe something that's four-dimensional using three dimensions or two dimensions, really a spreadsheet, right? Hmm. But I'm not just trying to tell you, here's a piece of content about the hours that um, this uh, bagel shop is open in New York City. Um, okay, 
I can call that time, right? I can have a field called time, mm -hmm. um, and that's attached to that's a, that's an attribute of this bagel shop, right? Um, but it's also a um, has to do with when I'm going to show that content to a user, right? That's also going to be coded by have they displayed a preference for bagels in the past, right? There's all <laughs> these levels mm. of you know, and then a bagel is a kind of food, so there's that aspect to it. So if it's more global website, okay, this is where the food st information goes. So okay, now I have to put it there too. So I'm uh, trying to I've already mm. I've already used up three dimensions, maybe four, mm. right? <laughs> yeah, nice. That this one attribute has to has to satisfy. Wow. So it, it becomes clear very quickly just how hard this is and how content modeling is actually just the best we've got. <laughs> like I'm waiting for the, the even better tool, even better methodology for describing this thing. But we're getting to a very quantum physics kind of place here where it's like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know that we have the language right now to do this, but our best shot right now is structured authoring and, um, and content modeling and marrying those mm. two. So I would say that as a content, as a technical writer, if you already have a, a deep understanding of structured authoring, that's great. All, you're, you're, you're coming at it from the other angle of saying, okay, do I understand why this content is structured in this way? And are we structuring it in all the ways that are beneficial? Okay, have we written down the fact that a bagel is a kind of food and that that might be a way we're sorting the content? Um, have, mm. we got, have we created a field for that? Have we created an identity for that? Um, Whereas I'm coming at it from the other end saying, okay, um, here are all the different things that this content needs to represent and satisfy, and now I want to give it to a content engineer or a technical writer say, okay, figure out how to make that work, right? <laughs> figure, out <how> to, <laughs> figure out how to actually do the real content structuring because um, uh, I'm lazy. That sounds hard. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about. You said you talked about. Uh, let's talk about your team. You got a team of four or five people. Mm -hmm. um, are they all content strategists? And you said that you also work with. Well, tell us about the people you work with, and sure. tell us about your team based structure. Uh, so typically on a project, we'll assign a content strategist, maybe two if it's a really really big project, and they'll be on a team with someone from or user user experience, one or two people from there, so, so a few folks from uh, design, visual design. Um, depending on the scope of the project, we might be working with a front-end developer as well, usually a project manager and an account manager, right? So that's your team who's working with the client to build whatever experience we're building. Okay. Um, and again, like I said, ideally, we're there from day one. And we're kind of like, you know, hotbox working in a, you know, a war room together, like, you mm. know, on a regular basis, fleshing out ideas. And this is what you heard. Okay, this is what I heard. Okay, I think maybe we need to do this. Um, through the different phases of the project, so there'll be a discovery phase where we're learning about the client and learning about their audience, and you know, UX and content strategy are going out and doing like user interviews, ideally, um, while the mm. content audit's going on. Then during the actual, you know, design phase, we're coming up with the, the the solution, the experience. I'm writing up the content strategy and marrying it with the user experience strategy, and again, it's we're collaborating the whole time. And then the actual build happens, and we're kind of. QAing and making sure that the content strategy is still being adhered to and the UX strategy and so forth. Um, but, uh, and then in terms of the team, um, you know, by designer default, we kind of fall into different uh, categories. We were like, you know, I'm sort of veer more toward the workshop, big idea kind of space. Uh, someone else on our team is much better with kind of governance and, you know, documentation and kind of almost intranet kind of concerns. Um, another one of us is really, really good at the sort of content marketing and the brand kind of aspects of content strategy. Um, hmm. And we're just, we're, and we all have just these different strengths and weaknesses that we try to complement each other with. Um, uh, and then we'll each kind of go off to our different, different projects to be on a, on a particular team. Hmm. Okay. So I guess, let me tie a little, all this kind of together for a second. 
I have a Roku box, and every so often I decide I want to watch a movie. Um, last night we were looking at a movie, and between looking at Netflix and Amazon and Metacritic and everything, it's like half the time I just give up and watch uh, a, a TV show because I just there's just too many parameters, there's too much stuff to find. I just want to find a movie. How does content strategy fix that? And where the hell can I go to find just I just want to watch a movie? Tell me what to watch. So, so pure content strategy would actually say, okay, here's a big, you know, market opportunity. And we, we have, we've seen because of the world we're in right now, where the amount of content far outpaces our ability to see it, <laughs> right? Mm, right. We're, we're, we are no longer, we've gone from what they call, um, you know, browse to search, right? There's a small enough amount of content where I can just go back, going back to information architecture, I can just create a menu and say, here's all of our videos, and pick which type you want. Mm, right. If there's like 100 videos, okay, fine. I can sort them and you can very quickly determine if there's anything that you want. That's if I have 100 videos. If I have 100,000 videos, there's no point. There's no menu in the world mm, <laughs> that right. you're going to sit through, <laughs> right? So, And you'll notice with Netflix, there's no see all videos option. That doesn't make sense. There's just a bunch of rows. <laughs> there's right, a search yeah. and there's a bunch of rows of stuff mm. we think you're going to like. And I was actually talking to a, a designer at Netflix and they were telling me that isn't some weird user experience um, mantra we have here. We just know from the data, people find what they want faster if we don't give them a big giant menu and we just start showing hmm. them stuff, right? Um, so I think that where we're going to go to is, you know, to solve your particular problem is a couple things. There's kind of a top-down approach of, I think we're going to start to think about... <laughs> consumption movies and consumption the way we think about our health which is to say mm. there's this vision we have of ourselves as someone who's seen the wire you know <laughs> or as someone who's seen all of breaking bad right or not right okay um that um that's going to appeal to one segment of society who sort of sees their information diet as just that a diet like i really i really really want to watch that thing and everyone's been telling me about it and i want i need someone to force me to do it you know hmm. <laughs> like i want that to be the thing that shows up first when i open up my roku is hey remember you wanted to watch the wire boom here it is right mm. right the right. same way that when i wake up in the morning i can look at my like health app and it'd be like this is how much sleep you got this is how much you want to weigh blah 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 <laughs> um so i think there's going to be a growing uh consumption management industry that's mm. going to kind of play off of that to try to solve, to, to, to take that approach to solving your problem. Uh, on the other end, with people who don't want to be that proactive about it, and it's like, look, I just want something to watch. I think there's going to be a real narrowing down where you're going to open up your Roku and it's just going to show you one thing. Okay. Right. And it's just not even going to give you the option. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, <laughs> and it's gonna, like, oh, is this on Netflix? Is it on Amazon? Is it on it's, it's, it's Hulu? Like, no, it's it's going to know what you've subscribed to. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to pull randomly. It's, it's going to tell you what's recommended, but it's going to pull randomly <laughs> because there have actually been experiments that show if you show people recommended and show them random but call it recommended, the random does just as well, if not better, than the recommended. <laughs> oh, get out of here. <laughs> so really it's all about fooling you. <laughs> fooling you into thinking that you've made the right choice. Nice. Um, but I've already started to see people talk about this notion of we're, we're in a phase right now around personalization where it's like, let's show the user 15 things that, were, that appear to be handpicked just for them, and that will delight them and, and astound them. <laughs> and that's quickly running out of juice. We're, we're quickly yeah. not being astounded anymore. So it's going to, I think the next direction is actually to reduce choice rather than increase it mm. and bring you back to what it was really like before all of this, where you would turn on your TV, have three 
options mm. <laughs> and pick one. <laughs> I think we're going to have, I, like, I predict an app that's just basically called three options. And when you turn on <laughs> your TV, it will show you three options and only three options, and you'll have to pick one. <laughs> and that's it. And people will love it. They will say, thank you for reducing the clutter right. and just right. giving me three options. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the thing. It's the clutter. So, I mean, I think that we're probably in a golden age of content because there's so much great stuff out there, but it's impossible to keep up and it's impossible to find it all and say, oh, well, I don't have Showtime anymore, so I can't watch episodes, but I do have HBO so I can watch Veep or, you know, it's, but it's just, you're jumping all over the place. Do I want to, do I, I have to access my TiVo. I have to access Roku. I have to access, uh, you know, I have a computer connected to my TV for certain stuff and it's just all over the place and it's just hard to curate. So I agree with you that we need, you know, maybe that BBC model where it's okay. You get BBC one, two, three, and four and here's what's on. (laughs) And, and, and most of it's actually really good. Um, I was watching Sherlock last night. It was awesome. Um, so, uh, I think, but I think the other thing that's going to happen generation, generationally speaking is we're going to stop being completists so much, right? We're going to, it's, it's not, Right now, we're coming at it from this perspective of people who grew up in an age where it was conceivable to watch all the things you wanted to watch, right? Mm. It was actually mm-hmm. doable. Right. Because there's only, only so many things you actually wanted to watch or that were interesting to you, and you could conceivably, in a lifetime, get through all of it or most of it and be fine, or, or all that was on air or available to you. You could get through And especially it, weren't, they right? weren't broadcasting new stuff in the summer so you could watch all the reruns. Right. You had, you, it was manageable, right? And so there was this expectation that, well, of course I should be able to see all of Breaking Bad and all of The Wire and all of this mm. and all of that and all of, you know, of course, of course. I think the generation coming up doesn't have that expectation anymore. They get that it's like living in New York City. If you live in New York City, mm. you are always, I guarantee you, missing out on something. There was something amazing <laughs> right. happening and you are not there. And people who live in New York City get that. They get that. They appreciate the thing that they're at and they know <laughs> that they're already at an awesome thing. But there's some other really awesome thing happening that they're just – because it's impossible. You cannot be at all the awesome things that are going on in New York City at the same time. <laughs> it's just not possible. Same thing happens at South by Southwest. There's many awesome things at once. You accept the fact that be zen, be here now, <laughs> enjoy this, <laughs> right? I think that we're at that stage in entertainment now where there is – you will not live long enough to experience all the great TV that's out there, much less all the great movies, all the great video games, all the great art, all the great – you are, you are going to die and experience 1% of it if you're lucky. Right. Mm. And I think for us, that's a scary thought. Like, what do you, what do you mean? I'm, I'm going to miss yeah, out. Right. Yeah. I think the generation. FOMO. Yeah, exactly. I think the generation coming up, though, because like, you know, my son barely saw a commercial before he was like six because he was just looking at the stream of Netflix stuff. Jeez. Right. <laughs> he didn't have to sit through commercials. Right? Yeah, right. He well, on the one hand, he does have this very adamant, I think, born into him kind of like, I am not going to watch season seven of Adventure Time until I've seen seasons one through six. Right. Hmm. He gets that from us. Granted. But. He's not also thinking, oh my god, I have to see all of Adventure Time and all of Power Rangers and all of... He's just like, this is what I've picked. It's Adventure Time, and I'm going to be completist about that discrete thing, Mm. and I'm not going to worry about, you know... And then at some random point, I'm going to shift to Steven Universe. Like, it's just... (laughs) He's fine with that. He he isn't born with this expectation that he is going to see all of the things. He just... I don't think he has that. Time will tell, but I don't think he has that, and I don't think a lot of people who are born into a world where you can't see everything as opposed to inheriting a world where you can't see everything. Hmm. I think they're going to have a different set of expectations and they're honestly just going to be less stressed about that. Cool. Cool. That's a good point. That's yeah. Um, I will play, you know, go New Year's Eve. You say, oh, we should see this. We should see that. We should like, I can't watch it all. It's, just, it's impossible. <laughs> there comes a right. point where you just have to like go with your gut and say, you know what? <laughs> this is happening now. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> be it. here now with, you know, 
Um, so let's start. Um, last thing I kind of want to talk about is content camp. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you start Content Camp? Were you the? Was it your idea? Was it a collective? Um, and you know, it was nice because I went this year for the first time. Was there a hiatus? Because uh, I think I I never heard about it. I think I heard about it two years ago at your talk in in Philly Metro STC, uh, and then I didn't hear about it again until this year. And I actually went and had had a great time, and you know, saw some of those accessible people that you said that we've mentioned earlier. Um, can you tell us about your experience with Content Camp? Sure. So Content Camp was something I started in uh, 2013. Okay. Um, and it was all part of a plan, really, to kind of explore the future of content. This is something I'm obviously very interested in mm. for selfish reasons and selfless reasons. I kind of want to see you know, where all this is going. Mm. And um, one of the ways I wanted to explore that was by holding it on conference. Now, I had already been attending uh, this thing called Bar Camp Philly for a very long time, since okay. its inception in the late 2000s. And um, Bar Camp is an unconference. And what that format means is instead of having a conference where all of the sessions are planned in advance and you know who's going to speak and when they're going to speak, and that's all kind of laid out for you, when you do an unconference, all of that information is um, uh, decided on that day, that morning, when you're actually right, okay. going to the conference. So everyone shows up and there's a big board with lots of different um, uh, just times along one side and rooms along another, and people write down on cards, I want to talk about this, I want to talk about that, and then very quickly, you, the entire board is filled. So that morning, hmm. you come up with the entire content for the conference, and it's content that the audience has brought with them. It's really this kind of magical thing, very democratic thing, a uh, very democratic way of creating uh, a conference. And what happens is people, um, uh, people meet each other who would, who would have never met before. Hmm. And ideas get shared that would have never gotten shared otherwise because it's hard to get into conferences, right? <laughs> so um, so anyway, I thought that would be a great way, a great first step towards kind of discovering this future of content. Um, so I founded Content Camp in 2013, and we partnered with Bar Camp News Innovation, which was you know kind of already doing the same thing, but specifically around journalism. Um, and uh, Chris Wink um, from Technically Philly, great guy, very graciously, basically let us piggyback off of the conference they were already having. And we just basically, you know, gave them our, you know, our share of whatever ticket sales we had, but they provided all the infrastructure because the okay. other thing was, you know, again, time, not a lot of time. I needed <laughs> something that was easy to, to ramp up. So we partnered with them for a couple of years. And this past year, we partnered with um, PodCamp, which was kind of coming back um, after okay. a hiatus and um, sort of, you know, to keep, to keep the ball rolling. But, um, but yeah, but that was basically the inception of it. And the first year, it kind of really focused more on content marketing, content strategy, which is fine. I was trying to get it more forward thinking in that. And over time, it started to do that a bit more each year. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, and, it, and, I think, and I think that was a good need for it to fill too, because there wasn't really a content focused on conference at the time. Um, mm. uh, so I think that was also a good, a good need that it filled. Yeah, I was excited to hear that when you spoke about it two years ago. I was um, involved in the Drupal community then, mm. and there's been a lot of conferences and that several of their New York City conferences were unconferences, which I have mixed feelings about, but I think and I think it worked well at Content Camp, especially, which I was very intrigued to see how many different kind of industries were represented. You know, there were content strategy people, content marketing people, of course, podcasters. So it was great for me, you know, to have the technical writer groups and and, and the content strategy groups and the podcasting groups all together. And I got to go to different sessions and everything. So, and I think that was one of the things I've seen more in conferences in past couple of years is that there's much more diverse crowd. Like LavaCon was, wasn't just tech writers and information development world, which I went to last year, it wasn't just technical writers and content camp 
for sure is just it was a good a crazy mix it was really interesting to see the variety of people there especially creating content just in philly yeah yeah and i would also recommend um bar camp philly um, which full disclosure i've been running for about three years now as well okay um for that diversity and that and again i think that speaks to not just the diversity of the philly crowd but the diversity of the kinds of challenges we're facing today that the kinds of projects that we want to build, the kind of businesses that we're creating require so many skill sets that it almost doesn't mm. make sense to have a conference that only appeals to one particular skill. Right. Good point. Okay. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we uh, wrap up? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's been... I, I mean, we covered a bunch of stuff. Yeah. It's great. It was all <laughs> over the place. It's awesome. I really appreciate it. You know what? Can you tell me a good movie to watch from last year? Oh, uh, from last year? Oh, Spotlight. No question. Oh, that's okay. Is absolutely. that available streaming now? Oh, that's not available streaming now. That's when you're going to actually go out to the theater to see. Oh. Um, available for streaming now, I'd say Mad Max Fury Road, which you're going to hear 50 other people tell you. But yeah, Oh, really? Yeah, that's that's great. Um, but that's available for streaming now. And Ex Machina, um, which was a sci-fi film from April. I believe that's available on streaming now as well. Great movie. Great if you're into sort of sci-fi thriller kind mm. of psychological kind of stuff. Um, yeah, a lot of great stuff out there. Yeah, we watched the uh, Star Trek, the second remake last night. I wasn't too thrilled with it as a longtime Trek fan, but <laughs> we don't have to go into that. All right, um, Dave, thanks you so much. That was great. Um, great insight. Lots of stuff for freewheeling conversation, which is what I love about doing this stuff. Um, do you want to remind us where we can find you online? Uh, I'd say the best place is follow me on Twitter. That's at movie underscore pundit, P-U-N-D-I-T. Um, and, uh, find me on LinkedIn right now. Like I said, Sally, that's for the best representation of me. Mm. <laughs> and I'm working on DavidDillonThomas.com, getting that up to speed. But right now I'd say LinkedIn is a little bit better. <laughs> Sounds good. You can also find me on LinkedIn, unlike, like Dave rather, most of my professional related stuff is there uh you can also find links to this podcast i think and uh my website at edmarsh.com i am on twitter at ed marsh um and everything of course like dave says is a work in progress so <laughs> be patient um also don't forget about content content.info which is one-stop shopping for content strategists and technical communicators and people who create content um and also, please don't forget you can subscribe to the Content Content Podcast on iTunes. Uh, and please be sure to write us a review. It really helps uh, in the rankings and it helps get the word out there that we're doing some good stuff here. Or um, if you're not thrilled with it, let us know so we can improve it. Um, if you're on Android, you can go to edmarsh.com slash podcast and subscribe using your favorite podcasting client. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn and also on SlideShare, where I posted my most recent talk at the STC New York Metro Conference. So um, until the next episode, thanks again, Dave. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. And thanks. Uh, hey, have a great New Year, everyone. Hope your 2016 is great. Take care. <laughs>